Hello and welcome to True Crime People and Places, the podcast where we explore the world of true crime from an academic and personal perspective. I'm Linda Sage, a criminal psychologist with over four decades of experience working with some of the most dangerous individuals in the world. This is a fairly new podcast and we are developing the systems and growing our audience. So we appreciate your support and feedback. This podcast may contain discussions of violence, murder, sexual assault and other topics related to true crime. Listener discretion is advised. If you are sensitive to these topics, please be aware that this podcast may be triggering you. If at any time you feel overwhelmed or distressed, please take a break and seek support from a mental health professional or support organisation. And welcome back. We are here with another amazing guest today. And uh, Madeline Black is uh, joining me. She is a real campaigner for uh, helping people be courageous and moving forward because crime has had such an impact in her life from an early age. So, Madeline, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, Linda. It's so lovely to join you. Thanks for asking me. So I don't know where you want to start with your story, but I'm going to you know, tell us a little about who you are and you know, what happened, really. Um, well, this is really always weird to know to say who you are, but I am a psychotherapist. I'm an author. I'm a speaker. I'm a sexual violence activist because my story is one of sexual violence. So I was um, 13 years old and I went on a night out which went disastrously wrong and I was gang raped by two men, which obviously had a massive impact on me. And it was only when I was writing my memoir um, many, many years later that I realized I'd been raped three more times before the age of 18 because I had no understanding about consent and I was just you know, too scared to fight back. So I just uh, didn't say anything and they just carried on. And interestingly, those are the, the chapters that a lot of people connect with and they say, well, that's happened to me. Does that mean that's rape as well? And well, well yeah, if, if you didn't say yes, then that is rape. So I use my own lived experience, as you say, to encourage people to find their voice really, because I think what we don't speak about just holds us back. You know, it gets very heavy inside of us kind of energetically and we don't live our to our fullest capacity. You know, all our potential isn't realized if we harboring a dark or shameful secret inside. So somebody else shared their story, which helped me to find my voice and my courage, because courage really is contagious. And I just really hope that I can do that and pay that forward for other people to find their voice just so they can live their best life. And then they go on to inspire other people. So it's a massive ripple ripple effect that I'm, I'm part of. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, you're, you're not old now, but the justice system in the past have been renowned for not being particularly supportive, especially of rape victims. Yeah, well, was that an experience? Did you actually go and speak to somebody or have you never spoke to anybody? No, I never reported it. One of them, which I call the worst one, threatened me at the very end. And he told me if I spoke about it, he would kill me, which I uh, looked into his eyes and I knew some of the things he had done to me. So I, I believe this man was actually quite capable of killing me. And you know that I'm a Londoner, even though I live in Scotland, and they were sons of diplomats so they would have been in the UK for a couple of years and then they would have left so um, no I never reported it but I have worked for Women's Aid and I've worked for Rape Crisis and Scotland is even worse than England I think of all cases that make it to court maybe 
4% or under 4% would end in a prosecution. So things, I think, are even worse. I think they are campaigning to have a sexual violence court, so they'll have properly trained judges and lawyers so they can understand the impact of trauma, they'll be more trauma-informed. But until we really have proper sentencing, it's just a farce, isn't it? Why would you want to report it? If, you, if you're going to be re-traumatised and then end up knowing the chances are very unlikely you'll get a prosecution, why would you want to go through that? It's awful at the moment. Yeah, it, it, it is something. So at 13 years old, yeah, how how did you actually deal with this? If you if you didn't talk to anybody else, how did you actually get it sort of in your head? At 13, <laughs> it just kind of came out to me. So at 13, I ended up becoming anorexic. I attempted suicide. I went ended up in a children's psychiatric ward for about five to six months. I used a lot of drugs and alcohol. Really anything I could do just to cut off from all the memories and push them inside of me just to numb out really and just not connect to them at all and it's just been a very gradual process over time i met my husband 40 years ago now when i was 17 and originally i told him i would never become a mum because in my head i had such a fear of giving birth because i somehow thought it would be like being raped again you know there'd be men around me and my feet in stirrups i'd be out of control and it really terrified me with such a fear that I just thought well you know I just won't become a mum that would be the easiest way to my answers is what I did I used to just avoid things that made me scared but then I saw that if I didn't become a mum then they're gonna win you know I would be giving them all their power and control over me and they actually didn't even have any idea so reversing that decision I've now got three gorgeous girls one of which is 30 on Saturday which <laughs> old can't believe it and married um you know once i reversed that decision that then sent me on this journey of healing and then i became determined not just to become a mum but i wanted to live my life as best as i could i didn't want to be identified by what had happened to me so many many years lots of talking therapy lots of alternative therapies my personal journey has really been remembering my memories and even though I got them back I didn't want to remember them but I wanted to remember what happened that night I wanted to get back into my body which might not make sense but I feel like I, I left my body on that night it took me years to come back and I wanted to just not be um yeah defined by that one night in my life so it's it's it's, a, it's not a sprint it is a marathon it takes a long time it took me a long time to heal but I do feel now I'm on the flip side, I think now I'm thriving in life because I wouldn't be able to speak out or write about it if it still had any impact on me in that way. It, it, it's a bit like um, a scar, isn't it? You know, the scar uh, forms, it's there, but it, it doesn't have the same effect anymore as when it was an open wound. Absolutely, that's a really good way of, of calling it. And sometimes, you know, I think my scars all healed and occasionally I will get a moment and I think, Oh, for goodness sake, I thought I dealt with all of that. Why is that coming back again? You know, you know, it triggered in some ways. But then because I'm lucky, I've done so much work on myself, I can recognize now what's happening and I can regulate my nervous system quite quickly. And just it's always about just connecting back in to your source and connecting back to the, the ground, the earth, the planet and being as centered as you possibly can. To me, that is the secret because the triggers, the memories, the dreams, they just knock you off balance so if you can connect your head to your heart and to the ground then that is really the job i think that we have to do as trauma survivors 
Yeah, and you, you said you met your husband when you were 17, sort of in, in that span of that time as well. So, that, I mean, that must have been quite a huge step because a lot of people in that time frame won't go into relationships. It's too scared. Yeah, I was travelling away. I was caught up with some bad crowds, as my parents called it, and they thought it would be good for me to go away. So I went to the Middle East. I went to Israel for a year, and I met a Glaswegian. And somehow, um, I just instinctively knew that he was a good one. And, you know, it's 40 years later, so I guess my instincts were right. But, you know, I just I just trusted him, and I felt safe, which is what my, my whole thing was about then. I was very scared about my own safety, even though I was behaving quite rebelliously as well. Um, but I, yeah, my safety was a big issue and I just felt supported and safe and amazingly when we came back to the UK, he was in Glasgow, then I was still in London, I couldn't get over that he wanted to see me because I didn't think I deserved his love because I had no self-belief, no self-worth, no self-confidence, you know, I didn't think much of myself at all, but really over time he showed me that my image of myself wasn't correct and that I actually was a lovable human being and then I could give love out to him so love for yourself love for others it's always going to win love will always win over hate and, and that's really yeah his unconditional love has really helped me along the way i mean saying that 13 years old and how much your personality and your behavior changed did your parents put it down to anything in particular or were, were you able to sort of bridge that with them no they didn't know because i didn't speak so i literally Came almost mute. I didn't eat, I didn't speak, and I just shut down. You know, I just didn't function. They used to nickname me my friends the Ice Maiden because I was so, so closed off. Oh, I've just fallen down my office. And when um, I was writing my book, someone said, you know, you could apply for your notes. So I contacted Great Ormond Street Hospital because I wanted to see in there, this was the late 1970s, was there any clue? You know, did they know that I'd had a massive trauma and nothing? nothing in my notes all they put me down was a troublesome teenager with anorexia and i just think hoping now that these kind of units for children young people are different because then all they focus on was my behavior rather than say um you know why is she behaving like that no one ever asked me what had happened to you so i think they needed to have asked the right questions i don't know if i still could have found my voice but maybe in some way i might have been able to say what happened um but eventually obviously i did tell my parents many many years later yeah and and i'm moving on from there as you said it's a, it's a long journey but how how did you start that journey how did you come back because obviously you know being anorexic getting involved with drugs and things like that I mean they're they're big things to deal with and come away from on their own without dealing with all the the memories and the psychological damage of the actual rape yeah I think as I mentioned you know becoming a mum that was a huge thing and it, you know being anorexic wasn't about how I looked it was the only thing that I could control so when I started to go to therapy, I, I learned to sit with my emotions rather than run from my emotions, which is what I spent most of my life doing. And drinking and, you know, doing drugs was another way just to numb out. So once I was able to sit with the really uncomfortable stuff, to dive into the, the places that I had avoided for years, you know, those darkest, most shameful, dark chapters inside of me, once I learned to sit with them and ground myself in the process, there was no need for them because... I really just started to feel them, I guess, you know, um, I kind of, I kind of feel like I put myself in the deep freeze and then I kind of uh, thawed myself out. I put myself on the defrost button of all of the healing and all the, 
all the kind of personal development that I went through. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great way of saying it, because I do think that comes up, up an awful lot that people say that they build walls and, uh, you know, to stop people penetrating, but it also holds you in rather Absolutely. than just help. It's like a self-preservation, but then you stop people coming towards you. So it's kind of a win-win, but then it's not really, you know, you because, you know, you block yourself off from living. I was, the worst thing had already happened to me. It's like, um, you know, trying to uh, close the stable door once the horse has bolted. And the horse had already bolted, but then I was living my life as if something awful would happen. It had already happened to me. So it's just the effect of trauma, especially on a young mind. It takes a lot not to listen to your mind because it thinks it's protecting you, but actually it kind of, as you say, prevents you from living your life as well. Right. So for anybody that's going through something or been through something as and still in the denial stage, how do you think... Yeah, they can take that first step because like you said until you actually look for ask for help you don't get it and i think what you mentioned there at the very start of that was so important the denial stage because for years i denied it i minimized it i said it wasn't that bad it wasn't really rape it wasn't really assault it was my fault because i was drinking and i lied to my parents and i'd met boys you know stop all that find a way to pay attention to what you're doing to yourself because it's not really about what happens to us, it's what we do with it, that's what really matters. And all that minimizing and denying, it can just send us a bit crazy. But I, I just think wherever stage you're at, wherever you're at, it's never too late to go and get help. There's always someone there, but be careful who you tell your story with. You know, it's never too late to find your voice, but find someone that you trust. It doesn't necessarily have to be a therapist, it could be a good friend, your hairdresser, a neighbor, anyone, but to say those words out loud it somehow dilutes the impact it has on us and it, it changes the energy because it occupies so much space inside and when we can give it oxygen it it moves things inside and there's more space can then evolve for you other parts of you to fill up that space it doesn't have to be all filled with trauma if that makes sense and if you can't find your voice write your story down and just tell yourself your story you know read what you've written because it's so powerful to see it in black and white as well but yeah find someone to share your story with it's, it's never too late yeah. I, I think that's the big step isn't it the the acceptance and acknowledgement because as you say you know so many people live their life uh, as trying to be somebody else to not acknowledge what's actually gone before and, it, and it's really hard to ask for help we don't like to admit that we need help but no. um you know i was one of these people and i've worked on both ends i've been a a therapist and a client i've been on the end of a helpline and i've been the caller and when i was a caller calling rape crisis i would <gasps> then i just put the phone down and I, I did that like for months i just couldn't actually say the word so it, it's a process you know you can't just do it overnight it took me many many attempts but once you start to find your voice it, it loosens up but i used to feel like i was just blocked in my throat area the words couldn't come or wouldn't come so yeah you have to like an exercise you have to use that muscle and learn to use it but yeah asking for help is not always easy and and i think an awful lot of people that i've come across especially um, whether you feel this as well but you compartmentalize part of the life that that is like a, a this is the hiding behind a different person because they can sort of put it to one side and think that they can archive it without dealing with it yeah but as i said it's going to leak out it's going yeah. to come out and somehow, you know, some way that you respond or some way that you get triggered or some kind of behavior that you have or a pattern or an OCD or a phobia or a fear that comes from that 
place that you you think you've nicely wrapped up and popped in a filing cabinet somewhere in the back of your head it's like um i think my mind you know i used to think of it like a room and i'd had this room at the back of my head i'd open the door and i just shove everything in and slam the, the doors and the windows closed and then going to therapy was like opening the door and letting all the junk out and opening the windows and putting air in it and it just shifted everything about so yeah watch where you're stuffing things down because depressing when we have depression we are depressing we're pushing it all down and to um lift it up to speak about it will really it shifts so much inside energetically as well i mean we're gonna uh, don't have a lot of time today so i'd love to come back to, to the subject but obviously one of the things that um like male um behavior they like the co cohesive control which is is one of the factors especially that they think they have the right that a woman shouldn't be able to say no that you know whatever they say or their actions is okay is this something that you come across a lot yeah i think there's very blurred lines around consent and i think it's something that should be taught in school and not just consent about sexual relationships but consent about what a healthy relationship really looks like you know might be the same when I was a little girl go and kiss your granddad go and hug your uncle go and say goodbye go and give this one up. we should be asked would you like to give your grandpa a kiss goodbye would you like to sit on his knee rather than forcing us to do these things so really teaching proper consent and what it looks like to empower that person to give them the choice but consent within a sexual relationship it, it, if a no is a no and if you're too drunk to say no, that's not, that's not a yes. It has to be a very clear no and a very clear yes. So, and no, we are not property of men. Nobody has the right to violate us, male or female, in any way without our consent. And if they do, then that is rape. There's no blurred lines for me at all. And I think the law has got a little bit better in that respect, that there are more guidelines now. Um, and for that i think people do have a clearer perspective but i think they're still within society because children that are brought up within these sort of environments where domestic abuse is the norm tend to think that that's the norm to take into their relationships as well some do i mean i worked in the for about 14 years and when i worked within the refuge most of the women obviously all the children had been witnessed or experienced domestic abuse and very, 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 very small percentage in those 14 years went on to abuse the kids that were with them in the refuge. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean just because you've seen that you will go on to, if anything, it can help you, you know, be a circuit breaker. I will not bring my children up in that environment, which is why most women leave. So I don't always agree with that just because you've witnessed it, you will behave in that way. But, but there is the argument that we do model behavior as well. Um, but yeah, if, if you can get away and you see it's wrong, yeah, I think that that's sort of the trigger point, isn't it? You know, and and certainly all of my lifetime, all this investigation has been going on. That you know, what makes some people go yes and carry on, and others choose no and don't do it. You know, it's uh, it, yeah, it's not yeah. easy to leave, and it's not easy to stay. They used to say it takes a woman maybe up to seven times to leave, go backwards and forwards, but eventually, hopefully, once she makes the break, um because it's very hard when you're in it, it does become normalised if you're constantly belittled, you're eroded of your confidence and your self-belief and, you know, you start to live on eggshells if the dinner's not ready or if you're wearing a certain thing that they don't like, you start to fit in just to keep the peace. So, but once you see that you've been isolated, you can't make decisions, he's taken away your financial control of your own life, you know, slowly, slowly, it, it, it 
when you see it, it's not acceptable, but it's hard when you're in it and when you're really caught by the abuse because the abuse wears you down as well. Uh, often uh, women are isolated in these situations, so there's not many people to turn to. So it's not an easy situation at all. Because they do come um, be, uh, as part of it, isn't it? Becoming more isolated and breaking relationships. But you know, just to equal the balance here, I know we've talked about women being uh, abused. It does work both ways as well. I mean, yeah. highest majority of women are killed within an, uh, a home environment, and majority of males are in the street. But you know, it, it does it's, happen. It's two women a week, I think. It's yeah. It will be killed by a partner or ex-partner because I remember years ago we did the exhibition of the shoes. It was like 104 shoes which represented, um, it was 50 odd shoes. We had that, the pairs represented the number of women that were killed every week um, within their home. And it was all shoes by famous people had been donated and it traveled around the UK and we had it where I worked at Women's Aid. So that was very powerful. When you saw all the shoes laid out on the floor and that was the number of women per year, it was like, oh, wow. Yeah, incredible to think that there, where we are now moving through history and everything that you know this is still going on you know it's it needs, it needs a big shake up the justice system um you know when i worked at great crisis women would say well should i go to court and should i not I think, well i can't influence you in any way it's your decision but you have to be you know very realistic that the chances of it ending in a prosecution are very slight so if you're going just to be able to tell your story which is very healing as well that's good but if you really hope to get a conviction you know i couldn't guarantee that and even today i don't think i could guarantee that i still worked in that environment which is really sad yeah so you've come an awful long way you've achieved an awful lot of things so what's the future hold for you I never really know. <laughs> I just wait and see. <laughs> you know, I just trust life now. And my situation's changed a bit. I have my mum living with me currently, so she's become my priority. But, you know, I'm always speaking out. I'm passionate about sharing my story because I really want to end the shame and the stigma and the silence that surrounds sexual violence. But I want to mirror, to, to be the mirror for other people, to show them that, you know, she can stand on the stage and speak about what we would think would be the most shameful event ever to happen then maybe I could go and speak to someone and if she can heal her life in that way, then maybe I can take that step and heal too. And I've, I've done this because I've watched other people do that and now I'm seeing other people do it because of me. And as I said before, it's just a ripple effect. You know, it's, it's amazing what happens when we all stand together. We are definitely stronger together. One incredibly courageous step that you, you've taken and it just keeps getting bigger and get bigger. So thank you, Madeline, so much for being with us. And uh, I will put your information up. So if anybody wants to get in touch with Madeline, the, the contact information will be with the podcast. Thank you so much, Linda. I love speaking to you. So thank you all for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed it. As I say, uh, if there's anything that you want to know or any particular areas you're interested in, just drop us a line and we will be looking into it. The podcast is developing, so uh, all topics are open. So for now, take care and we will get back with you next time. Thank you for listening to True Crime People and Places. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. And if you have any suggestions for future topics, please let us know. See you next time.